am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, help us to have you for our God. Help us to remember that we do in your sight whatever we do in your service. Help us to worship you and to walk in right relationship to you. Thank you for delivering us out of Egyptian bondage, out of bondage to sin and Satan and death. Father, give me the grace to speak powerfully and accurately what's contained in your law and help us to listen and obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first commandment is obviously not just first in order, but first in importance. This commandment contains virtually all the other commandments. To break any command is to say, God is not my God. I don't worship Him. I worship this other thing that I am trying to get by sinning. You commit adultery, you are trying to get that sexual pleasure by sinning against God, and so that sexual pleasure has functionally become your God, the thing you're looking to to satisfy your needs. And so it is with all ten of the commandments. The practice of having the true God, of having Yahweh for our God, is the practice at the core of biblical religion. It's not, as we say, not a religion, it's a relationship, and the first commandment abundantly makes that clear. The first commandment is not, honor my temples and perform all my ceremonies. The first commandment is not, make sure you pay your tithe on time to the priest. The first commandment is, keep yourself connected to me. Have me, have and hold me, as your God. So as we saw, chapter 19 is about people who don't understand holiness. They're ready to go up the mountain and see God, not understanding that they'll all be fried. But here, chapter 20, the first commandment speaks to these people, that is, to us, people who don't understand what God's holiness is. And it tells them, you want to know what holiness is? Holiness is having Yahweh for your God. Holiness means entering that relationship with God and keeping that relationship with God. Take Him as yours and live before Him. So the command is not, as you notice, I, there are no gods before me. That wouldn't be a command, that would be a statement. Moses starts, God starts, with an imperative, a directive. Now, scholars then, and non-scholars, have debated, well, what is God trying to say? Is he saying that there are lots of other gods out there? And the answer is, yes, of course there are lots of other gods out there. But also, no, none of those gods are on a par with Jehovah. The Bible says, both things. It says the other gods are nothing, and it says the other gods are demons. Isaiah 41, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is nothing, and abomination is the man who chooses you. 
Or 1 Corinthians 10. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? That an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. God is not inviting us with this commandment to speculate on whether there are many gods and many lords. It's not a statement per se about whether Zeus and Baal exist or not. This is not a commandment along the lines of there are no unicorns or leprechauns. So don't try to seek them. Instead, God is saying, whether you think they exist or not, whatever your views on Baal and Asherah and all the other competitor gods out there, don't take them as yours. Don't worship them. Don't engage in relationship with them. Don't even take their names in your mouth. It's a command. Not, right, the Ten Commandments are not ten axioms for theological speculation. They're not ten descriptions of the divine. You can learn about the divine from them, as we said last week. But the primary purpose of these things is to tell us how to behave in light of the character of God. God saved us from Egypt. That's the reason annexed to the first commandment. And the commandment is, don't have another God for your God. If your mom says to you, clean your room, you can say, hmm, what can I learn about mom from this command? Mom prefers order over disorder. Mom believes in duties for children. Mom has this mania to get herself off the hook and make me work. People try to psychoanalyze their mothers. But in the same way, we shouldn't primarily say, what can I learn about God from the command? In one sense, we need to go clean the room. We need to build the relationship with God. So if you're an Israelite and you've come out of Egypt and you're wondering, well, what exactly is the relationship between Ra, the Egyptian sun god, and Yahweh who brought us out? Do they share the same heaven? Are they partners in the god business? Like how, do, how do these two get along? You could figure that out by reading scripture. And what you see is that God made all the angels. Some of the angels sinned and became demons. Some of those demons decided they liked human worship. And they went and influenced people to build them statues and temples and worship them. But those demons that pose as false gods are always on a lower level than the true God who is their creator and their boss and their master and can send them packing with a word. The rest of the Bible makes that clear, but the first commandment isn't a statement about that. It's a statement about what we are on the hook to do which is, in so many words, to have Yahweh for our God. And that verb, as I said, that general verb, have, is the one that describes what's required in this commandment. It's not a specific verb. You shall obtain, or something like that. Have, it means to possess, to get, to keep, and so on. Can hold tightly to him. Walk with him, worship him, know him, love him, choose him, desire him. All the things listed in that larger catechism. Thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, fearing, believing, being zealous for him, calling upon him, praising him. 
and so on. All of those things are contained in this one verb, to have God for our God. Essentially, I would say we can boil down having him for God to two things. Relationship and worship. Have God for your God requires that you walk in relationship with him. To have a God is not quite the same thing as to have a snack or to have a job. It's a different kind of possession. It's much more like having a spouse or having a child, but it's even more than that. It is a super relationship, as it were. The thing that controls one's whole life. Let me read again the sentence from Bob Inc. Relying, hoping, expecting, loving, fearing, honoring, and so forth. These are not tautological terms, but a series of subtle distinctions and nuances of that one great relationship that we must have with God. In other words, it's not enough to say, I obey God. That's all he wants. Having God for your God is more than that. It's not enough to say, I love God, in the sense both of obedience and the warm, fuzzy feelings. He wants more than that. It's not enough even to say, I fear God, just in the sense of, yeah, I'm afraid of what he might do. I'm afraid to sin. I have the utmost respect and awe for his mighty rushing holiness. You can't pick just one aspect and say, that's what's required. Everything involved in having God, everything involved in relating to God is here. We see this in the natural world. Somebody who says, well, I'm a child and I obey my parents. That's all they need. I'm an adult and I call my parents once a year on their birthdays, whether they need it or not. And that's all they need. That doesn't capture, that's not an adequate way of obeying the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother. There's more to it than that. And in the same way, we human beings love to limit this commandment. I praise God all day long. I'm always turning on Christian music. And therefore, I know that I keep the first commandment. Mm, That's good. But the first commandment is more than that. Or, I'm sorrowful. I hate the things that God hates. I just walk around and see our sick, depraved culture. And I am just sad all the time about that. And so I know that God is my God. Again, that's part of it. But that's very far from being all of it. To put it in the most general way, the commandment places on us the moral demand to be rightly connected to God. A correct, right relationship to God. It's understanding combined with commitment. The relationship where you say, I feel very close, fun to do this, some kind of party game. You guys have probably seen this. You put the husband and wife back to back and he holds up one of her shoes and she holds up one of his shoes and you ask, who's a better sleeper? Who eats more? 
who likes shopping more, etc., etc., and you see if they answer the same way or if they answer differently. They, of course, can't see what answer the other one is giving, but it's very illuminating. A lot of people say they love someone and don't know what that person loves. To say that God is your God and not to know, for instance, what he says in his word. To say that God is your God, but to admit, well, yeah, I rarely pray. I talk to God one or two minutes a day before meals. If that, how can you be rightly connected to someone you don't even know? If you say he's the most important person in the world, and yet your actions spin make it look like to you, he's the least important person in the world. The older authors on the Ten Commandments always cover prayer as required in this commandment. And notice that that's in the larger catechism as well, that it requires calling upon him. Again, now just having a great prayer life is not the sum total of the first commandment, but it is required here to have God For your God is not like having the U.S. federal government for your state authority. Most of us want to keep our contact with our state as little as possible. God is not like that. He's not the czar far away from us. He is someone we should walk humbly with every day. To know God, understanding combined with commitment, it's more like Adam knowing Eve, his wife, and less like knowing that helium is the second element on the periodic table. So there's the knowing side of that relationship, and then there's the commitment side of that relationship. To have God for your God is not something you will give up, something you will lose. You can't say, well, God is my God when conditions are good. God is my God provided that I can afford what I need. God is my God provided He comes through and gives me what I want. That spouse, that child, that job, that stock portfolio. To have God for your God is to keep Him even when you're wandering through the desert with no water, as we've seen in Exodus. Even when you're in wartime, fleeing as a refugee. Even when you've lost everything. Something happens to your house. It burns down, it floods, it rots, it becomes unlivable. You can't say, oh, more important things have come along. I'm in a crisis here in worldly terms and therefore, God, you're going on the back burner for a while. To have God for our God is to be committed to Him as Habakkuk says, when the stalls are empty, there's no animals, when there's no crop in the fields, no fruit on the vines, nothing in the olive orchard, when the larder is empty, the grocery stores are stripped, When your belly is hungry, your body is cold, God still has to be your God. In our circles, we're big on understanding. 
We have to be equally big on commitment. God will be my God no matter what. Even if I suffer like Job, lose my family, lose my stuff, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So that commitment is expressed as faith in the Bible. It's expressed as hope. We're looking beyond the bad circumstances of the present to the good circumstances of the future when God provides, when God comes through for us. We also have to trust God for forgiveness. Oh, my sins. I damaged my relationship with God. I did something that he wouldn't like. And I kind of did it in a really bad, especially aggravated way. Commitment, relationship, having God for your God means that at that point you say, God, I know you will forgive me. I come back to you. I don't abandon this relationship. I embrace this relationship. So having God for your God means you're committed to Him for forgiveness. It also means you're committed to Him to help you stand against sin. You fear God more than you fear missing out on sin's pleasures. Sin tells you, this will be fun. And you can say, yes it will, sin, I'm going to go do that. Or you can say, I fear God and damaging my relationship with God more than I fear missing out on that thing you're promising me, sin. This is all summed up in relationship, commitment, understanding. But along with relationship then comes worship. To have God for your God means not only that you talk to Him, that you walk with Him, that you obey Him on a daily basis, It's not just a me and Jesus thing because the first commandment also requires worship, which is exactly where the second commandment goes. That relationship, taking God for your God, comes to active expression not only in internal love and fear and commitment, but in the external activity of gathering with God's people and worshiping Him. What if you found a Muslim who never went to mosque or never participated in any of the five pillars of Islam, never went on pilgrimage, never gave alms to the poor, never prayed, right? You meet this guy and he tells you, I'm a Muslim, and you're walking through his city and the call to prayer sounds and everybody else gets down and prays and he just keeps on going about his business and he does this day after day and finally you say to him, what sort of a Muslim are you? Is Allah really your God? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't you pray? Why don't you give alms? Why don't you fast in Ramadan? Why don't you do the things that are required of a follower of the prophet? And surely there are Christians we know, and Christians we know who could ask us, you say you're a Christian. Why don't you do the things that are required of a follower of Jesus? Jesus himself had to ask that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not Do what I tell you. One of the things God tells us to do is worship. To have God for our God is to participate in the community 
of the people of God and worship him as he commands. The final part of the commandment, to have a God, and the commandment requires us to have Yahweh for our God, and it adds that we have him for God in his presence, this before me. Before me sounds like uh, priority, perhaps, in English. God is, Yahweh is my number one God. Baal is my number two God. Or in our culture, Yahweh is my number one. Mammon is my number two, my backup God. If God fails me, my bank account will be there. That's not what the commandment is trying to say, that as long as Yahweh is your top God, you're okay. Before me doesn't mean before, as in first, second, third, fourth, and one comes before two, which comes before three, which means before in the sense of in front of me. You shall have no other gods in my presence, immediately before my face. What is God reminding us? He's reminding us that whatever we do, we do in front of him. God is always watching. And to worship another god is extremely provoking to the Lord because we do it right in front of him. You can imagine going to your Weight Watchers meeting and bringing along with you a large plate, not a 10-inch plate, not a 12-inch plate, but a 14-inch plate, and it's loaded up with chocolate cake and brownies and cookies and a big banana split on the side. And you go to your Weight Watchers meeting, and in front of all the other people who are trying to lose weight, you sit there and eat dessert for the whole meeting. God says, this is what it's like to worship another God. You're not doing it on the slide. You are doing it right in front of me in the most provoking way possible. We had some relatives on the other side of my mother's uh, sister-in-law who visited our house one day after some event that they had come to and it was a man and a woman and they came by and this man loved to talk and he started talking and he was telling us all about his wife and all about how he couldn't stand her and all the things that she did and we're sitting there and they had arrived together in the same car and it, you know both wearing wedding rings and we were thinking is he talking about his wife like this right in front of her and he goes on and on and on and our eyes just getting bigger and bigger and finally they leave and my mother informs me that was his sister oh that makes more sense somebody wouldn't talk about his wife that way right in front of her even if he truly believed all of the things he was saying and in the same way, brothers and sisters, how could we as Christians act that way right in front of God? When we worship another God, when we have another God for ours, even for a very brief period of time while we're sinning, while we're giving into the flesh, the devil, the world, we're saying, not in secret, but right in front of God, before his face, you aren't God enough for me. I need more. God warns us, you are 
in front of me. You're always in front of me. I'm always seeing you. I'm right next to you. And whatever you do, I see it. We know that. We like to ignore that. We like to pretend that that doesn't happen. God isn't watching as long as none of God's people are watching. But we know in our heart of hearts that God sees and the commandment reminds us of that. To have another God is to offend God to his face. So what is the application? Well, the application is very direct. Have God for your God. Take him to be your God and recognize that he is your God, that you have him, that you keep him, you claim him as yours right in front of him. That you have God and that you have him in his presence. He knows that you claim him as your own. Some people try to divorce the law from Christ and say, well, we shouldn't stop there. In fact, we shouldn't even say that. We should just tear out this page in our Bible. Because the law gives no power to obey, and what's important is to know Christ, who can help us please God. And that's true. Christ helps us please God, and we can't obey this law without him. But it's equally true that this law, as we saw, is the law of Christ, that Jesus loves this, that Jesus spoke this through his spirit, that he is the one who tells us, have me for your God. The law comes from Christ. It's his description of how his redeemed people should live. He wants us to obey it, and that's why he gives us his spirit to empower us to have him for our God and to make ourselves his people. He made the first move. He saved you first. He brought you out of the land of Egypt. He brought you out of the dominion of sin. Now, he says, live for me. Be in relationship to me with commitment and with understanding. Worship me. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt and made you walk erect. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the grace to keep this commandment. Help us to have you for our God. To love you, to walk with you, to fear you, to choose you, to desire you, to pray to you, to praise you, to listen to you and obey you. Help us, Father, to engage not just in one or two aspects of relationship to you, but in every aspect of relationship to you. Help us to know you. Help us to commit to you. Help us to worship you. And help us to remember that we are right in front of you as we do these things to please you. Thank you that your son has saved us from idolatry and the folly of worshiping other gods and looking to them to save. Help us not to do that. Help us instead to have you for our God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.